June 6, 1944. D-Day. Considered by many to be one of the most important days in human history. On this day, Allied forces would launch what is still the largest military expedition in the history of the world. Before the sun had even risen, paratroopers had dropped in behind enemy lines, and thousands upon thousands of others were headed to storm five seemingly impregnable beaches. All five beaches were geographical nightmares and heavily defended. And yet still, the soldiers chose to go. Not knowing what would happen to them, or whether or not they would return, they had determined that the name of freedom was worth dying for. We're in the book of Acts, and we've made it up into chapter 21 where we find Paul with his face set towards Jerusalem. And similarly, he has said, I do not know what's going to happen to me when I go to Jerusalem, only that sufferings, afflictions, and chains wait for me there. And still he is determined to go. So much so that when his friends ask him not to go, he responds in verse 13 of chapter 21, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What are you willing to die for? We'll be covering verses 21 15 into 22:21 this morning. And what we'll discover is that Paul, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, goes into Jerusalem where he tries to live peaceably and faithfully. And yet, despite his faithfulness, despite being peaceful, he still encounters hostility. The enemies of Jesus try to kill him. Even after hearing his defense, his testimony. And so our our main idea as we get ready to traverse the text this morning is this. Although Christians should seek to live faithfully and peacefully, they should not be surprised when they meet hostility. Stated differently, we could say faithfulness to Jesus often results in persecution. And the exhortation, what I want you to do in response to the text, is to prepare yourself to suffer and even die for the name of the Lord Jesus. To be prepared to give everything for Christ, just as Paul was. I'm going to work through the text in two parts. We're going to talk about Paul's report and take a look at kind of a game plan from uh, the folks in Jerusalem. That's verses 15 down through 26. And then with the rest of the verses, we're going to look at a riot and Paul's defense speech. So with that, let's, let's pray, and we'll get into it here this morning. 
Father, we need you. That's why we're here. We, we need to hear from you. We need you to make Jesus the delight of our hearts. We need you to speak to us so that we might become more like Christ, so that we might know you more. We need you to meet us now. Lord, we come knowing that this life is very short. That we have very little time to grow in Christ-likeness. And so we, we come soberly We come asking that you would speak. We pray that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared and the congregation to hear a better sermon than I preach so that Jesus Christ might be honored. We pray these things in his name. Amen. And so the word has spread throughout Acts, right? Remember, we've summarized the book of Acts this way. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And, and we've seen this happen. Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. And then his church, filled with the Holy Spirit, spills out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now we, we kind of find Paul, as the word has been spreading, he's headed back into Jerusalem, where despite his persecution, God's word will still continue to grow. In fact, because of Paul's being bound and chained, we end up with parts of our New Testament. See, God, what we find, is not restricted to just using a handful of really special apostles. God is building his church. Jesus is building his church, and yes, he's using Paul to do it, but he's using all kinds of men and women to do it. And he's still building his church. He still uses his church to do so. And so as we turn our attention to where we are in Acts, Paul headed to Jerusalem. Let's, let's look at verse, start at verse 14. Since Paul would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done, what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. And so Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. He's welcomed warmly, and so we get a sense of the friendship he shares with the other churches once more. And then the next day, he goes before James and the elders of the church, and he gives them a detailed report where he's just enumerating his tears and his joys and his travels. He's telling them what he's done and what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And the result is everyone who hears glorifies God. The glory of God is the result of Paul's work and Paul's report, not the glory of Paul. Right? It's not that they're not thankful for Paul. 
But ultimately, their thankfulness for Paul is expressed in giving glory to God. Everyone recognizes that this isn't what Paul has done ultimately, though he is an instrument in the hands of God. It is what God has done and is doing. And so they rejoice. The point is that God's glory, not the glory of the minister, is the goal of ministry. This is important in a time where pride is conceived of as a virtue and humility is looked upon as a weakness. Paul is not puffing out his chest and saying, look at me, look what I have done. He is humbly saying, look what God has done. And this is important for all of us because each and every one of us that is a Christian that calls upon the name of Christ is a minister, is an ambassador of Christ. And the goal of that ministry, the goal of the ministry that you have is not to make yourself feel really, really good, though it might do that. It's not to bring yourself glory or to make a name for yourself. It's to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who is ultimately at work in and through you. So we want to give glory to God when we see he's at work. And one of the ways we see he's at work is doing what Paul does here. He's just reporting what God has been doing. When was the last time that you just went up to another brother or sister and said, let me tell you what God has been doing in my life this week? When was the last time you asked someone, what is God teaching you? How is he challenging you? How is he growing you? Where are you struggling to follow? What what marvelous work of God is going on in your life? I think we do well to identify ways that God is at work in our life and ways that he's at work in the lives of others. This brings him glory when we point out evidences of grace in one another's life. And so tell that brother or that sister who encourages you or who you you see growing in gentleness or in kindness or who is serving in some obscure way, hey, brother, sister, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate this about you. Appreciate your your positive attitude. I I appreciate uh, the way that you have been so patient in this particular situation. Encourage one another. Look for evidence of grace and then give glory to God because of the way that he's at work. We want to be a people committed to God's glory. This week, meditate. Take some time, 10 minutes, and just think about how God has been at work among you. How he's at work among us. And give him thanks and glory. Paul gives this report of God's work among the Gentiles. He's been saving many. The elders in James glorify God. And then almost as if in the same breath, they bring up what's become something of a problem. Saying in verse 20, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed. And they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, 
telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So they say, Paul, there's a big problem here. Let me, let me untangle this because this can be a little confusing section. Basically, you have Jews who have become Christians who are listening to or who have been told lies about what Paul is teaching as it relates to Jewish Christians. And so what they've heard is that Paul is saying, you can't really be Jewish and be a Christian, right? And Paul has not said that. So you can get a flavor of this. It's, it's there in 21, but also in verse 28, when they confront Paul in this riot, uh, the Jews from Asia or Ephesus, they shout, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place. That's, that's the temple. And so the, the gossip or the rumor that is out there is that Paul is anti-Semitic. He's anti-Jew, anti-law, anti-temple. And so to follow Paul is to really cast off any little tiny piece of your Jewish identity. We know that's just not true. This isn't, this isn't how the council treated Gentiles, right, which they're going to bring up again here um, in verse 25 with regard to the Gentiles who have believed. We've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Remember that from back in chapter 15, the Jerusalem council they're saying, what do, do, do Gentiles have to become Jewish to become Christians? And the answer was a resounding, no. But they do have to be holy. They can't go to these pagan worship festivals that involve these things which we've enumerated. And so now, what's happened is this kind of got flipped a little bit. It's almost like they're saying, Jews cannot be Jews and be Christians. But Paul hasn't said that either. Nowhere does Paul prohibit the participation in Jewish customs. In fact, we just saw in chapter 18 and verse 18, he completed a vow. So, so Paul is not anti-temple. He is, he's not anti-Jew. He's not anti-law. He is preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the law, as the goal of the law. But as it relates to participation in Jewish customs, he says that's up to conscience. He, he talks about that in Romans 14 and 15. And so, what I, what I need to make clear here is the issue is not salvation. Everybody agrees that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The issue that Paul is dealing with is, is it okay for Jews to participate in ceremonial laws? And he says, yeah, that's fine. But what the Jews are hearing is that Paul is saying, that's not fine. You can't do that and be a Christian. And so the issue is how to live as a Christian, not how to be a Christian. And so... One of the things I think we should recognize is just how messy rumors and gossip and lies can be. Gossip and lies create division and destruction. I mean, one of the enemy's favorite tactics for fomenting rebellion and creating rivalry among brothers and sisters is by carrying lies along on the lips of Christians. A little piece of, of gossip. It doesn't really seem like gossip. It just gets spread around. Misinformation. Slander is a great weapon in the hands of the enemy. Friends, the tongue, James tells us, is a really small part of your body. But much like a spark can start a fire, 
so too can the tongues of Christians, when they are not well guarded, set a congregation ablaze. Gossip will create issues. We want to be sure that we are a people who keep a close watch on our words. That we, with the psalmists, pray that God would set up a guard over our mouth. That He would keep watch at the doors of our lips. That's Psalm 141.3. We want to be a people that speak that which is edifying. That which would build up the church rather than tear it down. A people that obeys Ephesians 4.29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Gossip has made its way around the church about Paul, and now it is affecting relationships inside the church at Jerusalem. And so the elders are, are good elders there. They're, they're guarding the unity of the church, and they say, this is a problem. Say, Paul, we're so happy about what God has been doing with you among the Gentiles, but that reminds us of this thing where a lot of the Jews here think that you've said they can't be Jewish, do Jewish things anymore. They have to give up that Jewish identity completely in order to follow Jesus, and we know that's not true. So here's our game plan to bring clarity to the situation. This is what we see in verse 23. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. And so their plan is, Paul, uh, go with these guys to the temple and pay for them to get haircuts, right? It's likely that they're completing a Nazarite vow, and that's part of the whole process. And so Paul is just going to show that he's not anti-Jew or anti-temple or anti-law by participating in this custom. And he's going to go with these guys. He's going to pay for them to complete their vow. And he is going to worship in the temple with them. He's going to purify himself there. It sounds like a pretty good plan. Two things to notice is that Paul has the freedom to do this. Love what F.F. Bruce says is a truly free spirit is not in bondage to its freedom. Paul has said, let each make up his own mind in regard to diets and special days and customs. You can do what you want according to your conscience. But he's also said, these are not necessary for salvation. And yet still, he's willing to do this. Which brings me to the second thing I want to draw to your attention is his humility. Like, Paul submits himself to James and the other elders and says, I will do this. <laughs> I think like if I were Paul in this situation, just because I'm much less holy than him, I might have said, actually, James and you other guys that are with James, not as important, do you guys know that I'm kind of a big deal? Like, I'm the Apostle Paul. I don't need, I don't, I don't need to purify myself and pay for haircuts and go to the temple and, and do any of that stuff for anybody. I don't have to do that. This isn't how Paul reacts, though. Instead, he humbles himself, and he does as he is advised. 
ask myself the question this week, how can I more humbly receive godly counsel? How can I make sure that I am listening well to the other Christians in my life so that I might labor for unity? I think it's a question worth asking. Paul decides here to live out what he's written elsewhere and give up his rights so that he might serve the promotion of unity within the church. We read in verse 26. So the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offerings would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, again, Ephesus is in mind here, saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. This is another lie, you see, an assumption. Verse 30, the whole city was stirred up. And the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the temple gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Note the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy. He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed, yelling, Away with him! Get rid of him! So it seems like a plan that's supposed to be conciliatory for uh, the Jews in the church probably functioned that way. But those Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem, likely to celebrate the Pentecost from Asia, well, it riles them up. More lies are believed about Paul and told about Paul. And as a consequence... The city finds itself in chaos. And notice, there, no one is engaging Paul to figure out what the truth is here. Right? There, there isn't any amount of like, listening and trying to understand. It's, it's an immediate like, ad hominem attack. Like, they're not attacking Paul's position, they are attacking Paul's person. Literally, they're, they're attacking him. Not engaging with his thought. Not considering, well, what is he saying and what are we saying and and let's make sure that we haven't misunderstood him. He's intentionally misunderstood. It doesn't matter if Paul is anti-Semitic or not. The crowd wants its pound of flesh. And they will have it. Why? I think the answer is, they're not worried about what Paul is actually saying. What they know 
is they don't like this Jesus that Paul preaches. And they certainly don't like the ideas of Gentiles and Jews being made one people of God. And so they rage against Paul. I wonder, have you ever fueled your anger based on falsehoods? Not heard the whole of, of a story, become angry with someone or something? Do you think you're more eager to understand others, especially those who disagree with you? Or are you more eager to mischaracterize them and demonize them? Are you a person who engages in civil discussion? Or are you more like the crowd here, ready for a riot? Pray that we would be a people known for our gentleness our graciousness, and our reasonableness. Paul is persecuted here simply for identifying with Jesus and because he is mischaracterized. It should not take us by surprise when we as Christians are mischaracterized. I'll read to you, uh, Dr. Marita writes this, Obedience to Jesus will involve hardship So we shouldn't be surprised should intimidation, hate, and false accusations come our way. Many Christians have been and will continue to be victims of hostility and lies. Early Christians were accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism simply because they greeted one another with a holy kiss, took the Lord's Supper, and refused to worship the emperor. Today we're accused of immorality and bigotry, because of our views on sexuality and marriage. Friends, you will likely be subject to encountering hostility if you hold fast to the revealed will of God. Jesus is not beloved by anyone who is not a Christian. And as the world rejected Jesus, it will and continues to reject his followers. And so when you are mischaracterized, when you are rejected, remember that they rejected your Savior. Maybe together with Peter and the apostles as they did in chapter 5, rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Indeed, don't lose heart. Because even in your trials, you are imaging Christ. Just remember, anytime dishonor comes to you because of Jesus, that he was dishonored for you. He was dishonored for us so that God would honor us. He endured mocking and suffering so that we might have peace with God. And so we too, with our eyes fixed upon the cross of Christ, can endure suffering and hostility. This is how you prepare yourself for afflictions and suffering. This is how you prepare yourself even to die for the name of Jesus. 
by setting your heart and your affections entirely on Jesus. When you delight in God, everything else falls into its proper place. You will be ready to face any kind of suffering. You will be ready to engage with any kind of hostility in a way that is spirit-filled and God-honoring. Your delight in the Lord Jesus is the fountain from which everything else in the Christian life flows. If we are not delighting in Jesus, then we are lost. But when our hearts are set on Christ, well, we can suffer for Christ. We can say with Paul, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And indeed he is. Even now as he is bound and being led to the barracks, he moves that he might speak to the people. Verse 37 As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, Am I allowed to say something to you? The commander replied, You know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? And Paul said, No. (laughs) He says, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had been given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the, the Hebrews of the day, and so he's just garnering some respect there. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated the feet of Gamaliel according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there, and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. There someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me. And said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one 
and to hear the words from his mouth. Since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard, and now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And yet the Lord said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is as far as Paul gets before the crowd interrupts his speech or his defense. Uh, the word is apology. It's from where we get from apologetics. It just means defense. Paul's defending himself. He's sharing his testimony. And he wants to do, I think, four things in this speech. First, he wants to say, I am a Jew like all y'all. I'm a Jew like you, right? You see this, he says, I studied under Gamaliel. I was born a Jew in Cilicia. I follow the law according to our ancestors. I was zealous for God. I persecuted those who preached Christ. I killed them. I was there holding the clothes of those who were killing Stephen, giving approval. I, Paul, have been where you are. I, Paul, am a Jew. In fact, I'm probably more Jewish than all of you. That's point number one. The second point is, I met Jesus. That whole Damascus Road experience. Like, I'm on my way to kill Christians just as you are attempting to kill me now for preaching the Christian gospel. I was on my way to kill them, to persecute them, and Jesus interrupted my life. He knocked me from a horse and said that my persecution of his people was tantamount to persecution of him. And he said that I wasn't going to do that anymore, but instead I was going to preach the gospel. That I wasn't going to take life from people anymore, but I was going to give life to people by telling them of Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification. By telling them that peace with God can be had by faith in Christ. My life changed. Because I was being led by the hand. I went and saw Ananias, who, by the way, another great Jewish person. He's showing, I'm not anti-Jew. These things you've heard about me are wrong. Ananias has a great rep. And Ananias tells me, God is going to use me to hear words from the righteous one. That's Jesus. He's going to use me to be a witness. And so that's what I've done. Paul's third point, Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. That's what this business in the temple in verses 17 uh, through 21 is about. He, he, he goes into the temple and he has this vision and God is saying, you are going to go to the Gentiles. And Paul's like, actually, I could have a really good ministry here. All the Jews know what I was. Surely they will see my changed life and believe. I'll be an effective evangelist here. And God says, no. No, you need to go because I'm sending you to the Gentiles. This promise is for the Gentiles also. And this is when 
the Jewish crowd cuts Paul off. They can't, can't take any more. But, but you will notice that this vision in the temple, before it's cut off, when he's telling them about it, it actually should bring our minds back to Isaiah chapter 6, which we read earlier, where Isaiah, like Paul, is having a vision in the temple, where Isaiah, like Paul, is told that the people he is supposed to preach to or that he wants to preach to, the Jews are not going to listen to him. Now, unlike Isaiah, Paul is told to, to get out of Dodge before he comes back. Isaiah has to, has to stay and preach and experience that rejection straight away. But we are to see this continuity between Judaism and Christianity once more. Like, like Paul is telling us that Christianity is the completion of Judaism. He, he doesn't want his listeners to think that they have to give up their Jewish identity and their Jewish cultural practices in order to become Christians. In the same way, Gentiles don't have to give up all of their cultural practices and their Gentile identities to become Christians. Like, certainly, they have to make their Christian identity becomes preeminent. So they're a Christian before they're a Jew. They're a Christian before they're a Gentile. And they, but they don't lose their, their Jewishness or their Gentileness when they become a Christian. You understand what, what we're saying here? Christ defines them ultimately, and they still can have these other parts of their lives. And so, so Paul's even defending against that here. And that brings me to the fourth thing that I think he's doing. And it's more subtext, but... I think it can be read even though we don't finish his sermon. We don't have his whole sermon here. And he's simply saying, you can get in on this. He's saying, I'm a Jew. I've been where you are. And you need to be where I am. I was a killer of Christians persecuting, just like you're persecuting me now. But God interrupted my life. And he can do the same for you. I love the heart of the Apostle Paul here. When people are jeering at him and mocking him, he doesn't look out and go, these foolish scrubs, idiots, enemies of God. No. He looks out and he sees himself. He, he doesn't, but he hears their voices. He hears his own voice. I've been where you are, at war with God, dead in my sins, enslaved to the evil one. But I'm, I have God now. I met Jesus. You, you can hear the call of the gospel underneath of this sermon. He's saying, you can have Jesus. You can have a Damascus Road experience. Call out to him in faith. He longs for their salvation. To the extent in Romans 9, he says, I would be cut off for my brethren. Can't help but think of Christ who was cut off for his brethren. He was cut off from the presence of God so that you and I could be grafted in. Jesus gave up his life so that rebels who would have him killed could be adopted into his family. It's, it's incredible. The grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. And salvation is the opposite of what you and I deserve. Friends, if you are here and you are a Christian, 
It is because Jesus interrupted your life at some point and got a hold of you. It is because of the mercy and grace and kindness of God. If somebody ever asks you the question, well, why are you a Christian? The first phrase out of your mouth ought to be, because God. Because God saved me. He did it. I encourage you to rejoice in your salvation this morning. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, there is mercy for you. Jesus calls all who are willing, who will come to him, to repent of their sins and put their faith in him so that they might have life. He won't turn you away. And if you feel within yourself the faintest flicker of light, the faintest desire to come to Jesus, don't snuff that out. Recognize it for what it is. The beginnings of the work of the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the Father unless they are drawn. Perhaps you are being drawn even now. Friend, give in to the Spirit and put your faith in Jesus. Paul went into Jerusalem with his faith fully in Jesus Christ not knowing whether he would come out alive or not, but willing to die because he knows that Jesus gives eternal life and raises the dead. Friends, let us likewise walk by faith in our lives. Let us be those who are willing to suffer and even die for the name of the Lord Jesus because he has given us eternal life And we know that he raises the dead. And as he is risen, so too shall we rise. Friends, let us delight in our Lord together this morning. Let us go all in on Jesus. He is so worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Most importantly, we thank you for Jesus, who is not merely an example, but our Savior. Thank you that he poured out his blood and paid the penalty for our sins so that we might be declared righteous, that we might be adopted into your family, that you might look at us as sons and daughters. We thank you that By faith in Christ, our sins are wiped away. We thank you that in Christ, we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We thank you that we have this by your grace, this eternal life. It is your gift. We give you thanks and glory for it this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.